Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today on the show, we have Reverend Dr. Gary Dorian, the Reinhold Niebuhr Professor of Social Ethics at Union Theological Seminary and Professor of Religion at Columbia University. Dr. Dorian is here with us today to discuss his 2015 uh, book published by Yale University Press called The New Abolition, W.B. Du Bois and the Black Social Gospel. Welcome to the show, Reverend Dr. Gary Dorian. Thanks, Adam. It's a delight to be with you. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on to the show. It's uh, it's definitely a pleasure and an honor, uh, especially you know with this being the 150th year, as we talked about uh, offline, of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' uh, uh, birth. And so, especially me right now being in a place in Massachusetts, in Boston, where it's snowing. So it's a prototypical, you know, New England day, right? In the spring. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so um, before we get knee deep into this phenomenal work, um, can you tell us about how your, your, your trajectory to, to how you got to, um, to, to your position right now at, at Union and also Columbia University? Oh, sure. Um, well, I grew up in a semi-rural, uh, lower-class uh, neighborhood uh, in uh, the middle of Michigan. Um, my father and my parents had grown up in the Upper Peninsula. Uh, my father took a fair amount of abuse for his uh, uh, being Native American. And uh, when he moved to mid-Michigan at the age of 20, he considered that an opportunity to uh get all the white privilege he could get going on his side. So, and especially to raise his children, he wanted, uh, that was the most loving thing he could imagine doing is, is to raise them in a way that they wouldn't have to deal with the kind of things that he grew up with. Um, and so I grew up, it's just sort of culturally, you know, white as far as I knew. Uh, and certainly in this very sort of deeply sort of lower class white um, semi-rural community uh, in Michigan. So uh, that's what I uh, came from. Uh, it was only, I mean, many, many years later, uh, you know, my father, um, you know, had a kind of personal adjustment. Uh, and uh, I mean, today he, he, uh, he is uh, vigorously, even aggressively Native American, uh, but, and that would not have happened without the civil rights movement. Um, but, uh, uh, I grew up uh, in the, you know, the lower class of, uh, of, of, a, white, of a very white world um, and was lucky to be able, you know, to, to go to college or anything like that. I mean, where I grew up, nobody talked about, you know, going to college or having a career or, or uh, any such thing. So uh, my whole life is f- fairly unlikely uh, in that respect. I did squeak into college. Uh, I had uh, Martin Luther King was a luminous figure uh, in my imagination and my life uh, through uh, through school. He was assassinated when I was in high school. Um, he was uh, to me to the extent that I even had thoughts about religion or politics or such things or just anything sort of trans you know transcending uh, the life world of a of a lower class community. I mean, it was, it was because of King um, and also because of the, uh, the imprint of, of just, just enough of kind of Catholic sacramentalism of the Catholic iconography, especially Jesus on the cross. Um, I, I, mm-hmm. We were not um, religious people. I was not very church, but I got just enough of it 
um, to be affected by it. And then this one thing and another kind of blended together in my thought and feeling with uh, Martin Luther King and this, uh, this cross story. Um, and that's what ended up taking me into, you know, years later, actually joining a church and going to seminary and getting all these degrees that took me um, in this path. Um, but I didn't become an academic till I was 35. I was uh, I came in through the okay, door, okay. through the door of social justice activism, solidarity activism. Um, in my 20s, I was a I was a, a speaker uh, for two uh, Latin American solidarity organizations, and was deeply involved in uh, community organizing and in the anti-apartheid movement. Um, and it was only uh, at the end of that period that I actually, you know, joined a church and started on this track of uh, where I was a pastor for some years in the Episcopal Church. Um, and then when I was 35 years old, I stopped repressing this uh, academic whatever. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I had three books out by then. And my wife just, my wife was, who was a fabulous Presbyterian minister, a much better pastor than I was, just said, look at you, you know, you're writing these books at 3 a.m. That should be telling you something, you know, about who you really are. So why, why are you uh, repressing it? So that's what, uh, that's what finally got me uh, on an academic path of, uh, of uh, teaching and, um, and live and just having the, the wonderful privilege of being an academic. Right. And I think that, um, and as I told you offline, I'd uh, have the great opportunity to listen to some of your uh, uh, book talks on this one and also the second um, uh, part of this group of books that you're coming out with, um, that you've come out with as well. Um, I've had the opportunity to hear you talk about this particular story. So can you tell us about how and why you came to this particular uh, subject of the Black Social Gospel? Because um, it's something that I think has affected the world the, the world greatly. And yet I don't think people can actually articulate uh, fully where this, you know, social black social gospel movement comes from. Yes. Well, um, firstly, as I said, I, you know, I came in through the door of, of social justice activism. So that's, that's what I really am. Uh, and a lot of that was uh, was in, involved in uh, community organizing. Uh, during my years as a pastor, I organized, you know, ecumenical MLK uh, services. Um, uh, so that's just that's my work. Um, and so, of course, that's what I that's what I brought to my scholarship. In fact, the scholarship really was just uh, to, to me, it was just an aspect uh, of the solidarity activism uh, that I was doing. It wasn't wasn't the other way around by any means. Um, and so th I guess four of my first five books were all about um, democratic socialism or social democracy or aspects of religious socialism, liberation theology uh, and the like. I had one one Kant and Hegel book that was just pure philosophy in those early books. But uh, but uh, most of the others had some had something to do uh, with these um, topics. Um, so, uh, I came actually quite early, uh, to a reading on what the social gospel movement had been, uh, that was contrary to what was, uh, in the literature. I mean, there's this famous white social gospel movement that there's shelves and shelves of books written about. Um, and I was influenced by it. I mean, Walter Rauschenbusch, the great figure of the white social gospel is a tremendously important, um, figure to me. So, um, I, you know, very conversant with that literature and wrote a fair amount uh, about it. But the fact that so much of that literature, virtually all of it, 
uh, is just such a white bread uh, phenomenon. You just would you wouldn't even know that there was such a thing uh, as a black social gospel going on at the very same time, and in, which in many respects is better uh, than this white social gospel movement and dealing with uh, real issues that only certain white social gospelers even get close to. And so I had a certain sort of dissatisfaction and just sort of contrary feeling about, you know, how this subject should be talked about uh, for, you know, for a very long time. Um, and I did sprinkle it into various books along the way. I mean, I, at least, you know, four or five of my books, I've, I've got 18 books out there, and a number of them have parts of my argument about this black social gospel uh, in them uh, all along. Uh, but meanwhile, uh, this is years after, you know, I've uh, finally come to Union in Columbia. I'm trying to get someone else to write this big, you know, black social gospel uh, story because I'm, you know, here I am teaching that this it's so important. Uh, and I've got it, uh, pieces of it in various books. Um, but, you know, I'm my argument is that we need a, you know, a major work on this extraordinarily important tradition that just almost never gets named as a tradition as such. Um, and so therefore certain people have just been forgotten who should not have been forgotten and we need to get back and it helps us understand Martin Luther King anyway. You don't really get King if you don't get you know what he's coming out of. Um, so I've got all these arguments and thinking I'm gonna persuade somebody out on the lecture circuit or uh, one of my own students um, to do it uh, and it never happens. And meanwhile, I've got friends here at Union, like especially my dear friend James Cohn, who, you know, just said, Gary, it's your obsession. You know, why don't you just just do it? You know, you're the one who's got all this in your head. Um, and I did realize, I mean, there, there came a point when I realized, yeah, this isn't something I can be laying on younger scholars. The kind of book I've got in mind is something that requires years and years of, you know, of uh, being involved in a subject such that you can generalize about, you know, you can make that statement about what's been said and what hasn't been said and the like, because you've in fact read everything. Uh, and that's that's the kind of uh, book that you you can't just, you know, you can't come out uh, early in your career, write, write a book of that sort. So even that was a factor to sort of get me over this hurdle and say, you know, okay, I can, I'll just face up to doing it myself. Um, and of course, uh, once I got going in it, it was uh, almost as, as a relief uh, for me to just finally just completely um, give myself to this uh, large subject um, because uh, I, this just the, the book registers a certain depth of feeling um, that I have about it. Um, and also just trying to get uh, the rest of the field to tell this story uh, rightly because the better social gospel is the one that doesn't even have very much literature. Mm, right. And and that's why I think that your book is so important because, you know, as you mentioned that, you know, other uh, uh, younger scholars spe uh, specifically that you're kind of initially pushing towards this project or this kind of project, you know, th this is a huge undertaking, right? This is a huge undertaking. Um, so not to say, of course, that younger scholars didn't have the opportunity or, or couldn't have made a, a good attempt. But personally, I am not too mad that uh, that you, uh, uh, Gary Dorian, has have taken the mantle uh, with the push of um, uh, liberation th uh, theologian uh, James Combe as well, pushing to say, hey, man, 
this is your project and we want you to do it. So we're definitely appreciative of that work. Right. And so, um, and, and yeah, so that's why uh, getting into the book, because, um, you know, I, I found it very remarkable. Um, you know, when I, when I read, uh, I, I mentioned to you offline, I went to see, uh, went to present a couple papers at the University of Memphis and I came into contact with, uh, uh, was that a, a, a Reverend Dr. Uh, uh, Andre Johnson, right, at the University of Memphis. And um, I didn't really have a big conversation with him, but um, became a Facebook friend. And I realized like, oh, snap, this dude is like, he's really out here doing the work. And so, um, and, you know, and continuing that tradition and, um, you know, every every Sunday he always asks, you know, can I pray for you, which is always a beautiful thing to see as well. Um, so, you know, seeing his work and seeing your work and, and the work of, uh, I think he's doing a project um, uh, with uh, uh, Henry uh, Henry Turner, right? And so, you know, can you talk about really the foundational uh, 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 persons to the Black social gospel? Um, the, the ones that obviously by century, almost this full century predate, predate King? Yes. Well, certainly my argument about the, the founders and just the founding of the tradition itself is that it's a new abolition movement. Uh, so that um, here we have th- these founders are people, some of whom have lived through the abolition period. They were abolitionists and then the Civil War and then Reconstruction now has even come and gone. And now they're having to ask the terrible question in the late 1870s, early 1880s. Well, what would a new abolition be now? You know, what what does it need to be now? Which is a terrible question, especially if you've you've lived through all the drama and trauma of what abolitionism itself was. You're you're highly aware because you're right in the middle of it uh, that you can't just kind of recycle what you said before. This is a different situation. It's a different uh, moment. And in some ways, I mean, this is every bit as terrible or worse and terrifying uh, as what uh, you were dealing with uh, before, because now you've got this mania of, of lynching. Uh, going on, and these 14th and 15th Amendments that were struggled so hard for are now being, you know, ripped away uh, through much of the country. And so, needing to kind of rethink how do we how do we preach the faith? How do we think about it? What kinds of organizations um, do we need uh, in this context? Um, that's I think that is the sort of orienting um, question. Uh, and people like Henry McNeil Turner and William Simmons uh, are are people who do bridge these two things. They were abolitionists, you know, uh, in, in their, at that earlier time, and they're old enough uh, to have gone through all that, and then they're uh, deeply uh, involved in um, in uh, reconstruction, reconstruction politics and religion. They sort of symbolize uh, the sort of coming together of those two things uh, in Southern contexts. Um, and then... Uh, and then Reconstruction uh, is ended, uh, sabotaged, I would say, uh, and um, and now they have to, uh, you know, sort of think about uh, what what now, what kind of organizations, how do you think about the faith, what kind of social Christianity uh, speaks to this situation, and including just what do we need to do within the churches themselves? How do we convince church people they need to be involved in social justice politics? Uh, that alone, just that uh, aspect of what it means to be social gospel, that you're 
you're telling ordinary church people uh, who've come to church on Sundays a kind of refuge from a hostile world, uh, and many of them just you know want to uh, sing and pray and and you know uh, focus on heaven and on Jesus, and uh, and having to say to them, no, the church has a social mission to transform the structures of society in the direction of something called social justice. You know, each part of that note. All, there are three parts of that sentence, and none of them are possible before uh, the social gospel generation because you need sociology and social consciousness and all, all that social stuff that comes from, uh, from that uh, period. That part of the story is similar in the white church and black church uh, contexts. Uh, but, of course, in the black church contexts, uh, this is a struggle for life and death. I mean, everything's on the line here. Uh, and the social gospel cannot just get you in trouble uh, with your uh, your religious colleagues the way it can in the white social gospel. It, this doesn't get you killed. Um, so it's it's a terrible thing um, to have to take on. In all of my founding figures, with one exception uh, in in the new abolition, there's only one exception to this. All of them have some kind of battle with their own denomination uh, because the social gospel is controversial. It is pressing a demand that many people don't want. And um, even, you know, in the AME, you've got bishops who don't want to don't want to be involved in this kind of um, activism. Uh, so that that debate is just perennial. It's just a given. Uh, and that, of course, didn't end with the founders. And Martin Luther King had to deal with that. Um, so uh, this the founding generation is people like um, Turner, who was a bishop, uh, and William Simmons, a similar kind of figure. Uh, in the Baptist context, uh, has spent most of his career in Louisville, uh, who uh, bridge the two generations, who live, uh, who are sort of founders of a, of a new movement and helping to build new organizations, um, and, um, and for whom they and then others around them, uh, some of them are only truly recovered when you sort of ask this question, well, if there was a black social gospel, then who, you know, who, who was in it? How many people are we talking about? Uh, who, what did they do? What did they build? Um, and the like. Right. And, and trying to really see about really the foundational elements of it. And also thinking about people you mentioned, um, you know, uh, 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 Bishop uh, Henry McNeil Turner, but also someone that I've come across personally in my work. Um, dealing with uh, uh, 19th, late 19th century uh, black women's print culture uh, being William Simmons and how influential he was um, to women like Ida B. Wells, who you mentioned in this book, who I think seeing, you know, the women that are involved in this in this tradition, too, I thought was very intriguing and something that I think is a valuable addition, because I think sometimes maybe not, I mean, sometimes, but a lot of times the influences and the central um, uh, uh, words and interpretations of women, black women in this uh, tradition as well, uh, uh, of really social activism gets really thrown under the rug. Uh, so it was, it was definitely awesome to see uh, someone like William Simmons, who gives opportunities to people like Ida B. Wells and, and other women to be able to to, to speak boldly within the confines of newspapers. Um, That's right. Uh, both Turner and, uh, and Simmons, uh, you know, were feminists. Uh, as far as uh, access and rights and uh, 
uh, and lifting up women and regarding and and, uh, and wanting women to, to play uh, public roles. Uh, in fact, um, Wells couldn't count very many of just supporters who definitely had her back. Uh, and of course, she's doing exceedingly dangerous work because she is the uh, anti-lynching crusader uh, in this country. Uh, and she can only do that in certain parts of the country. Um, but having the have having somebody have her back, and, and Turner is one of the few that she absolutely can rely on. He's she he's just a rock because he is just, he is utterly fearless, uh, and brave in a way that's just almost impossible um, to comprehend. Um, so um, Wells is a is a major figure uh, for me in the new abolition, as is Nanny Burroughs. Um, as are the club women uh, as well. I mean, it's a different trajectory, and that's more of the you know the elevationist uh, uh, tradition uh, with some of them. And of course, Wells was even in that. I mean, she was in the club uh, 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 movement herself, although they didn't they didn't elect her to leadership positions because they admired her, but they didn't really need her uh, uh, as an officer uh, in in the organization. Uh, but a person of just just unbelievable uh, bravery and eloquence and uh, in importance. Um, now, Ida Wells is someone that it was, she was discovered, you know, recovered um, by the, the early women's movement and the black power movement. I mean, that uh, she was forgotten for decades. In fact, her autobiography went unpublished for 40 years. First, she lived to see herself forgotten. You know, she lived long enough and lived through the 1920s seeing people write books and giving speeches about lynching that never mention her somehow. It's unbelievable. And so uh, she writes uh, this extraordinary autobiography at the end of her life just to kind of, you know, remind people of what she did uh, and where this whole lynching movement, anti-lynching movement um, came from. Um, And then that book went unpublished for 40 years, uh, despite a loving, determined daughter uh, who worked assiduously to try to get it published. Um, and it's only because of, uh, you know, the women's movement and, and black power movements coming up, you know, at the same time, uh, sort of looking back back for, you know, who have we lost? Uh, that why Ida Wells, of course, was recovered um, in, that, uh, in that work. So people like Paula Giddings um, uh, did important work uh, on her. Uh, but she's very much in uh, this black social gospel story since most of her activism is going on, you know, in social gospel contexts and churches uh, where she's um, where she's trying to you know, get ministers to kind of stir up the courage to, to do this kind of work or at least to support her in it um, and to build an organization uh, and the like. So uh, Simmons and uh, Turner are both figures of, a, of an earlier generation uh, who uh, admired her and supported her and, and who did an enormously important sort of foundational uh, work. Um, they're, they're social gospelers of different kinds, to be sure. I mean, um, Turner is just the epitome of, of the black nationalist tradition within uh, this black social gospel story. And Simmons uh, straddles uh, some of these lines. I mean, he, there's a nationalist streak um, in uh, Simmons, but also, but always, you know, he can work with uh, white Baptists, and he's good at um, at uh, at saying we need to uh, to cross lines. We can't ju- we don't want to just 
uh, uh, stick with a nationalist line. Um, and being involved in social justice politics means you got to do coalition politics where you're working with people who don't look like you or, you know, exactly like you, but you need to, you know, pull together to uh, to achieve ends. So um, they there are differences between these two uh, giant uh, foundational uh, figures uh, who come before the others, you know, sort of uh, in my uh, story. Um but uh, but they what they have in common is just this uh, extraordinary bravery and um, and uh, a kind of a kind of liberation theology a century before you know this term exists uh, a liberationist way of of understanding the scriptural narrative and, and the social ethical meaning of the faith and 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 that if Christianity means anything in a North American context it's got to speak to. Uh, the aftermath of 246 years of chattel slavery and now and now this Jim Crow plague. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think all this is going on. There, there's, you know, I, I heard um, uh, recently uh, Ibram X. Kendi, a uh, scholar at uh, American University, talk about how, uh, you know how sometimes people mention, you know, we go two steps forward and one step back, right? Especially in this context of a of, of a Trump presidency. But one thing that um, uh, Dr. Kendi mentions is that he, there's that's never true. That yes, you you abolish slavery, but there's the 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 a lot the the foundations for how. Um, uh, uh, the the failed nature of certain areas of reconstruction can happen. They were always there, even at the at the at the win, right? Even at the at the win of emancipation. And so, when people mention that all you know, two steps forward, one step back, you know, that's a mischaracterization uh, of of history. That's a mischaracterization of how historical processes work and how. It's only inevitable because we can see it in the timeline. But what about for the people who are actually living um, in in those particular times? They have no earthly idea of what is going. What you know, they might they might speak into existence within the prophetic tradition. But as far as them literally being able to pick out the certain area of history that's going to happen, you know that that's definitely not something that. That uh, that that folks within this particular tradition would have been able to to go for, and I, and I mentioned that um, because you know someone who you know whose name is in the title of your book and who people um, you know who feel like they know Du Bois greatly will probably look at your title and be like Black Social Gospel, but I thought right right I thought I thought Du Bois was anything but you know someone who. You know what came from a monotheistic background, or or, or or actually not maybe not came from it, but who expressed those kinds of religious ideals. But um, I think you have a, I think you have some fodder uh, for for folks uh, who who might think that. So if you could speak on that particular area, if you if 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 you can. Oh yes, yes. Well, firstly, I would say that uh, you know I identify sort of four lines of the Black Social Gospel. Huh? There's the there's the uh, there is a Booker T tradition. I mean that that is part of it. A lot of those ministers who, for whom Booker T was the uh, is the 
uh, had it right. And there is a nationalist tradition. And there is a protest politics tradition that ends up clustering around Du Bois and that he represents better than anyone else, even though, of course, he's not he is not a black social gospeler per se. Uh, and then there's a there's a group that kind of tries to have it both ways as sort of a you know, there's there's a Booker T trajectory. Uh, there's aspects of Booker T's witness and what he's doing, uh, including even the nationalism that's in Booker T that are right. But then Booker T's definitely wrong about you know we don't do protest activism. No, we've got to do that. So so there's also that uh, both and uh, group that's kind of having it uh, both ways. So there are the I sort of identify these four traditions uh, of the black social gospel in these uh, first couple of generations. Um, and all four of them already exist before Du Bois comes forward. Um, I mean, before Du Bois sort of breaks out and then sort of takes on Washington. And then once that happens, once you have a Du Bois versus Booker T argument uh, that is just so orienting and electrifying uh, and that frames uh, so much, well, then that's, um, you know, that's, that's the central thing I'm tracking um, for a while. Uh, but of course, Du Bois himself, uh, had, you know, he came from somewhere, uh, and uh, he, in that late 1890s, early 20th century uh, period, he has, you know, a dream for uh, for the black social gospel. He's very, very much aware of his clerical followers. I mean, he has at the second Niagara conference, he had Reverend Ransom, you know, gave the uh, gave you know what was really the the electrifying address uh, of that uh, conference, uh, and Richard Wright Jr. and other other clerics are involved in uh, Du Bois's organizations, and he is he is he is uh, assiduous uh, in in making sure that he's got you know folks like that. Uh, he and Reverdy Ransom uh, work together in a number of things. Um, so he is. Uh, he is the sort of leading force in that um, the the protest politics version, a tradition uh, of the, of uh, of these uh, four, um, and so people like Ransom and and uh, Wright and others, Adam Clayton Powell Sr., uh, you know, look to him for a certain kind of intellectual leadership and inspiration and guidance, and they take you know they they thrill to. Uh, to read uh, him in uh, in crisis, um, all all of them understanding that Du Bois is not you know he's not a churchgoer he's not uh, someone who's a creedal Christian or anything of that sort and there are all manner of debates about you know what what do we make of uh, of uh, whatever sort of religious sensibility that is there uh, with Du Bois I make the argument that Du Bois is is purposely um, elusive uh, and sort of double-minded about this religion uh, issue. He's certainly not a churchgoer uh, or the like, and yet the, this, this tradition that I'm writing about, these black social gospel ministers and others, are very important to them. He certainly sees himself in being involved in that struggle. He wants the social gospel way of understanding the faith to prevail in the churches. He thinks there's there's too much otherworldly you know, uh, Christianity going on in the churches. So he's, you know, he's cheering for Turner and Ransom and, uh, and Wright and these people uh, all along and working uh, with them. Um, and he's just such a, a, a just a transcendent figure uh, in, uh, in the politics uh, of the time, uh, such that even though 
I, you know, I just have to sort of take the risk that people are just going to read the title and think that I'm saying that W.B. Du Bois was a black social gospel something. Uh, and, you know, it's not, that is not what I'm saying. Uh, but he is, he is the crucial figure uh, in that uh, certainly second generation uh, story uh, of what was the black social gospel tradition. Um, and that's then the line that does take you to Martin Luther King is the one that he he represents better than anybody other than maybe Reverdy Ransom. Right. And, and you know, going back to even the souls of black folks, uh, you know, so the black folk, you know, you talk about how, uh, you know, he spoke largely about the sorrow songs and, and he talked about the importance of those when it came to uh, the religiosity of. Uh, of African Americans, and obviously they stem from um, uh, many plantation um, areas throughout the South, and, and how they permeated themselves within, you know, the underpinnings of uh, what would later be gospel music, which is obviously centered in Chicago and uh, moved up from uh, from like the Mississippi region and the Delta. Um, and so all of this is important because, as you say, like you know, some people may you know, look at the title and be like, what in the world is this dude saying? You know, Du Bois is not a black social gospeler. And, and just disclaimer, as, as he previously said, just in case you missed it, he, uh, Reverend Dr. Gary Dorian is not, I repeat, not making that particular claim. Uh, but, uh, you know, as you mentioned, he is someone that is, uh, he's, there, he's very much involved with the politics uh, uh, that are involved with the black social gospel. And I think, you know, you talk about Reverdy Ransom and, and, you know, can I just say there, yeah, Adam? Yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely. And it's not just even the politics. I think there is a deep uh, spiritual wellspring in Du Bois. It's arguably heterodox. I mean, you know, he's, he's going to make up his own mind about what he thinks, you know, what his religious worldview is. And he was influenced by, you know, he studied under the, all these neo-Hegelian idealists, ethical idealists at Harvard. Uh, and he incorporated... Uh, some of that worldview of Francis Peabody and William James and others that, you know, that he, he uh, studied with uh, there and had a similar kind of experience in Germany. So, so if you, if, if, if you, you want to tease out some kind of an actual religious worldview that Du Bois, I think, is operating on, I think, you know, you, you could tease out a kind of neo or post-Hegelian sort of way of thinking about Christianity, where in which the, the key to history is a struggle for freedom. Uh, that uh, that's very very akin uh, to and that's you know that is what Du Bois um, thinks, and, but what I would say about right with the the issue that you are sort of uh, pointing to referencing is it did um, it frustrated me for years uh, that what what literature we had about Du Bois because uh, you know for a long time we had hardly anything uh, I mean just for so long we had that Broderick book and uh, the Manning Marables early book and that was about it for a long long stretch uh, and then we got these you know magnificent books by David Levering Lewis it just did tremendous work uh, on Du Bois uh, but here here again I mean the one thing about Lewis's uh, take uh, on Du Bois that just was frustrating is that even Lewis is just tone deaf to the re religious idealism that is in Du Bois. He just has to, he, it isn't Christian in some way, in some doctrinal sense that Lewis thinks is normative if you're gonna you know, call yourself Christian or, uh, or religious even. 
Um, and so there's a there's a certain just not not you know acknowledging uh, a, a certain kind of religious ethical wellspring that's in Du Bois um, that. You know that church people in in Du Bois's time got. I mean, these ministers I'm writing about, they they certainly it came through to them uh, that this is someone uh, who uh, has religious feeling. Um, he is religiously musical uh, in a way that actually theologians tend to be, because theologians aren't people who just stick with a doctrine. You know, they're creative so far as thinking about doctrine, how they relate to, to the tradition. So um, that. That part of uh, sort of Du Bois's uh, work and just his being, um, I, I was seeking to sort of recover uh, within this uh, this you know, and in placing him in this black social gospel story. Even though I'm quite emphatic that no, of course he was not a black social gospeler per se. Yeah, absolutely, and, and those are all phenomenal points that goes to show that you know the spiritual nature of people is very much multidimensional. Um, and that how people experience uh, religion and how people um, experience, um, you know, the spirit, you know, or, you know, the Holy Ghost, as some as some folks say as well. Um, it, it's, you know, even if it's not within the Christian tradition, you know, how people go about trying to gain freedom. Um, as you said, you know, trying to trying to free yourself and try to free the soul is a, is a continuity that is millennia old. Um, and, and so going back, um, you, you mentioned someone who I thought was an intriguing p- person in this book. And, you know, at, to, to the listeners out there, there are a lot of different figures in this book. Before we talked about uh, uh, women like Ida B. Wells, men like Bishop uh, uh, Henry McNeil Turner and William uh, J. Simmons and, you know, uh, uh, various other women. But there are folks like Reverend Ransom and other men in here that are just tremendous and um, uh, 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 Professor uh, Dorian, if you may, um, would you be able to speak to someone like Reverdy Ransom and his importance to this tradition? Because I found his story pretty remarkable. Um, Reverdy Ransom is the quintessential founder. Uh, I mean, it's there's, there's it's everything that you know. It just. Um, he epitomizes uh, with this whole founding uh, tradition is about. It's it's the black social gospel at its best, at its most radical, relevant, uh, inspiring. Uh, he uh, He's an early Christian socialist. He, uh, he, he uh, goes to Chicago early in, in his ministry in the church where Ida B. Wells uh, was a member. Uh, he takes on Booker T. Just as you know, Booker T. becomes uh, famous, uh, he is uh, in an argument against uh, Booker T. preceding Du Bois. I mean, this is still the time that, at the end of the 19th century when Du Bois is still playing it very carefully with regard uh, to Booker T. Washington, not wanting to get on the wrong side of him. And you know, Ransom is already uh, taking on uh, Booker T. from a from a prophetic liberationist Christian socialist um, standpoint, uh, which is which is just takes for granted that we've got to build some kind of protest organization. Um, he is uh, stunningly uh, eloquent. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable that he was ever forgotten. Uh, you know, Du Bois himself said that, well, Ransom was just, was so eloquent that his his work will just live forever. That's what, that's what, uh, you know, uh, what Du Bois said when Ransom died. Um, so it, um, it's, 
that's how it seemed uh, that it should have been. And yet, in fact, he was totally forgotten. Uh, he just went right down the memory hole. And you almost had to be AME for a very long time to have ever even heard the name. Um, and his name doesn't come up even in even in books trying to track the ecumenical history of social Christianity and the like. He was just uh, forgotten uh, for so long. Uh, but it, it, it's quite amazing even from an institutional standpoint, I mean, just ignore the fact that uh, he's such a brilliant writer and speaker. He's in every organization. I mean, it's not for lack of trying. It, whatever whatever is going on, there he is uh, in the Federal Council of Churches, in the NAACP, in in the Niagara Movement, in whatever in the the uh, the memorials to the to the old abolitionists. I mean, he is just always trying um, to make. Uh, something happened, and yet, so there, you know, there he always is when you're um, trying to track um, this history. Uh, he ends up becoming the editor of the AME Church Re- uh, of the Church Review, uh, so a national publication where uh, he has he has a battle within the AME Church itself. He goes to Chicago, and the AME ministers get rid of him. You know, they boot him out because uh, he's too radical for them, and he's he's kind of making them look bad, at least you know from their standpoint. Um, so then he has, and then he goes to Boston. The same thing happens there. So it becomes nationally famous in both Chicago and in Boston uh, f- as a founder and pioneer of the social gospel, and as a as a you know uh, colleague comrade uh, of Du Bois's. Um, and yet, you know, he's he's also a very good example of what we were talking about a little while ago about how um, this will get you in trouble not just with the dominant culture, but you know, with your own denomination uh, who don't want to hear. Uh, this particular way of, you know, of construing the faith. Uh, and he finally, uh, he takes over the, uh, the AME Church Review to say, well, we, need to, we just need to make this argument in a, in a large enough venue that we just can persuade more people, you know, that this is the way to go, uh, which he does do. Uh, and one thing leads to another. And, you know, after 10 years of that, um, they elect him a bishop. Uh, so, you know, there's there's some success here to Mark as well. I mean, Reverdy Ransom spent the latter part of his career uh, as an AME bishop. And the same thing was true of Richard Wright Jr. So when you have Ransom and Wright both making bishop uh, in the AME, that's, you know, that's the social gospel really getting somewhere uh, right uh, within the um, AME tradition. So it's just, he's an extraordinary um, figure. Um and um, I would say, yes, represents that founding tradition at its best and in a line that does take you right straight to Martin Luther King. Right. And, and I think that, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, how how really their, you know, Reverie Ransom's centrality to this tradition. And and really, when you look at the uh, 20th century and, you know, it, and it's is very interesting. It's always to me so intrigu- uh, interesting. Right, excuse me, the 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 men and women whose stories are the ones that are, you know, really a part of the norm uh, normative memory of, you know, the 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 social protest tradition in Black life, and how by reading your book, I realized, like, good grief, you know. Ransom and and you know even learning about you know I went to an historical black college Florida A&M University and you know you have you know the HBCU folks that we'll get into with uh with your next work you know folks like uh Benjamin 
uh, Benjamin Mays and Mordecai Johnson and, and and folks like them, where it's like, goodness gracious, I I wish I would have grown up with these stories. But as many folks it, it, it realize, like it's not until you get older um, and you start reading books like like yours with the New Abolition, where you realize like there are so many more people, right? It, I, and I bring this up all the time because I was an NPR kid. You know, Paul Harvey's voice is you know signposted into my memory of you know the rest of the story, right? Like that very baritone voice. And so thinking about you know that kind of ethic when it comes to the kind of work that we do, really the recovery work that you're that you mentioned with Du Bois and his interactions with um with this tradition and Reverdy Ransom and others, that's why it's to me so remarkable to be able to interview folks like yourself so that people can have a better and more well rounded um understanding of the uh the the the, the reason you know that folks like King could come about that they were people that he built on that he didn't you know there's no immaculate conception in the story of how he gained his how he gained his knowledge um i mentioned a while ago that virtually all of them with one exception you know uh have a, had a battle uh with their own uh, denomination and religious communities the exception was alexander walters um and he's um, there are a couple aspects of kind of the why of that. Firstly, he's AME Zion, um, and uh, and so it's a, that that's a tradition that's actually trying to break into this story and has, has something of a competitive relationship with AME and parts of the South and the like. But you've got a you know another sort of tradition uh, here uh, that isn't you know it, it it's just different enough from the AME uh, tradition that uh, that it plays out a bit differently. But um, more importantly, more relevantly, probably in his case, is, is that um, Alexander Walters is one of those special human beings. He's just he is imbued. Uh, he has this this kind of deep kind of beauty, um, a kind of winsome, compelling, lovely, deep spirituality that everybody recognizes. So even if you don't like uh, what he's trying to drag you into or what is po- if you don't like his politics or whatever, there's just no getting around. This is just a deeply good, kind, loving, you know, human being. Um, people just cotton to him. And so because of that, because he radiated a kind of uh, holiness that just uh, made him, well, of a, you know, in a later time, he's a Howard Thurman type. I mean, that, that Thurman had a lot of these same qualities uh, because he, he was like that. Um, he, the road was smooth for him. I mean, people, uh, you know, he, he made Bishop by the time he was 30. Uh, he's, uh, he's, by the time he's 32, he's, uh, he's at the Mother Zion, you know, uh, church in New York City. Uh, so, um, uh, he, so far as the denominational context is concerned, uh, he had a pretty smooth, uh, road, but then, you know, to his immense credit. Yeah. Okay. He doesn't have a battle there. So he took on the battle in trying to build organizations. Uh, he's, he, he headed the Afro-American Council during the struggling years when they're trying to get it off the ground and now trying to fight off Booker T and now trying to do a dance with Booker T to try to keep it together after Booker T tries to take it over. Um, later, uh, teaming with the boys, saying we, we could be in uh, the Niagara Movement, later NAACP. Um, so um, Walters took on an enormous amount of uh, work in uh, trying to build a protest um, organization. 
and so all the you know all the all the struggle all the strife that he didn't get in his religious context uh, he got in his uh, his public uh, political one yeah and and i thought that was uh really really a cool part about this work is that you know i i was i, I was wholly uh and totally unaware of um of alexander um uh, walters and his work um but you know that that's why this book is important because it allows for folks like myself who have a running uh, a great running interest but not a deep um uh, reading of this particular tradition and, and it's partially why when i when i saw your book um i think it was on amazon or maybe even on twitter um <laughs> twitter is usually where i find out about a lot of these books uh through conversations by others but um seeing your work and um you know, and then going to Amazon and looking like, man, th- this is the- I need to get him on this channel, um, and and then um, and then receiving the books. And so I thought that, you know, you you mentioned his connection to someone like Howard Thurman. I thought that was pretty intriguing when you mentioned it because, um, you know, being in Boston um, and also having the opportunity to work at the um, African uh, Meeting House through the Boston Af- or through uh, excuse me. Uh, uh, the the Boston campus of uh, the Museum of African American History here, and his wife um, was someone who helped to really found uh, uh, Boston's uh, Museum of African American History. Um, and so, also, if you're an African American at Boston University, you're going to know two people. You're going to know Howard Thurman, and you're going to know Martin Luther King. And so, um, you know, I thought so. I thought that connection was really cool, and how you made that uh, Walters. And Thurman had uh, large um, uh, uh, connections, and you know, and kind of how they went about their work. Well, the kind of person they were, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I should say, um, you know, there is, so far as the socialist question is concerned, um, there is an explicitly socialist flank in the social gospel. I mean, by which I mean, you know, self-identifying, you know, just name it and claim it kind of uh, socialism, maybe even belong to the Socialist Party uh, kind of uh, trajectory. So that's people like George Washington would be and George uh, uh, Slater. Uh, and there are others uh, in that line. Of course, Du Bois uh, is in and out of that uh, as well. The social gospel itself, more broadly, most of the social gospel is socialist in the sense of of, of a kind of democratic social democratic tradition. That is to say, that you're you're saying cooperatives are a good thing. If you could expand the cooperative sector and maybe nationalize well, what they called natural monopolies uh, back then, uh, that just those things alone, maybe maybe put a single tax uh, tax you know the value of land. Um, proposals of that sort uh, were held uh, very widespread uh, in the social gospel on, on both sides, uh, black church and white church um, sides. Um, so in that, in the quite broad sense of the term, uh, there's, there's a lot of, of democratic socialism in uh, this social gospel. But then there's always this flank, uh, again, both on the white church and black church side, there's always a, a flank that's actually you know, we're members of the Socialist Party and, and, and making a, a big deal about saying we need to, you know, those who control the terms, amounts, and direction of credit have an enormous say in determining the kind of society that we all end up in. Uh, and so we need to, we need some kind of economic democracy 
uh, that um, that it that gets some kind of democratic control over economic institutions as well. Democracy isn't just a value uh, in the political sphere. Um, and that's a quintessential social gospel argument on both sides. In, uh, in the book, um, Washington, uh, George Washington would be is the sort of the pillar of that just because he's, he's such an incredible figure. I mean, just, he just gives his whole life. Um, to this argument and writes books, and he's a spellbinder. He's even in the uh, the the Wobblies, the IWW. Uh, he gets beaten up and hauled off to jail, and takes beatings and comes back for more. Uh, and is just another one of these people who's just so heroically brave, you just almost can't believe it. No, absolutely. And um, learning, you know, about the various figures in here and 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 how they, you know, like you mentioned with that that last story, people putting their 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 necks out there for this tradition and 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 I thought it was pretty interesting and and I think also something else that intrigued me too you know going on the 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 notion of socialism because you know in in our country you know socialism has a you know it's it has a, a tattered uh, 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 relationship with the nation though not literally because you know what is public education but then again that's a whole another you know there's a whole another uh story for another podcast but um looking at how the usage of socialism in 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 how because i think that because, I th- because i'm trying to think about how to articulate it as far as you know people today when they think of socialism and i and i ask this more for for like the listeners who might not have a a, a deep grounding and and in the Christian socialism that you're talking about, is there anything different or what are the differences between um, the Christian socialism that you bring about when it, you talk about a couple of the figures in comparison to kind of maybe uh, think about what, what most people think of the, their uh, interpretation of what socialism is. And, and, and like I said, it's typically not a, it's not in a, in a, in a good light, let's shall we say. Right. Yeah. Well, firstly, um, the social gospel, it's called the social gospel in this country, was called Christian socialism in England and uh, Scotland and in Germany and elsewhere in Europe. Um, and it usually has some kind of relationship to the, 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 uh, the social democratic parties uh, in, in Europe. Uh, you know, it always has that, that some kind of uh, uh, close relationship. In England, of course, it's with the, the Labour Party. Um, and these are traditions that go way back. I mean, we're... Uh, we, in, in this country, we tend to think when we, we hear this word, we just tend to just think of state socialism, right? Which is the government nationalizes the major means of industrial production or whatever, how, however deep down uh, it goes. And that that's the sort of understanding we have of it. But of course, people coming who are in these Christian socialist movements and um, traditions know that, you know, that's the latecomer. Uh, in socialism, the idea of, of, a, of that this that it socialism is is government ownership uh, that is the latecomer in the whole uh, history. I mean, for for decades uh, in England and elsewhere uh, in Europe, and then to some degree, then in this country as well, uh, what they called Christian socialism, or what they ended up calling the social gospel here, is just it's it's a it's a movement that at the economic level is trying to, is promoting uh, worker ownership, mixed forms of worker and community ownership, uh, economic democracy, um, uh, and the like. It's, it's expanding the cooperative sector, 
Um, and uh, and then you that sort of leads to okay, then what's the role of a federal government to make sure that you know uh, that the whole thing uh, works together? Uh, and it's only in the till the 1880s in England that there's that the Fabian movement comes along and just basically defines says that the that that socialism really means government ownership. And that's the first time we really have a tradition uh, that's just explicitly. Uh, you know, just that, that's the operative uh, idea uh, of what it is. But of course, that idea became uh, very influential. And then a, a generation later, once you have a, the Bolshevik overthrow uh, in Russia, now we got yet another thing. And now, now we're not talking about the second international. This, they've, now we're having a third international, the communist international. And, and that is just a form of kind of left-wing dictatorship, uh, where it's not about democracy at all. It's all about uh, a, a state power just sort of taking over and running everything. Um, and that, when that occurs, that's when you, it becomes almost hopelessly problematic in an American context to try to even try to remember, dig out the fact that that's just not that business. Uh, the, the fear of communism is just not at all uh, what people like Walter Rauschenbusch uh, believed or what people like Martin Luther King Jr. believed. Although what King, you know, this was one of King's great regrets is that he couldn't really talk about this uh, explicitly because uh, because the whole communist thing had so polluted and perverted the whole thing that it just uh, it was just too fearsome to be able to really speak. Right. To. No. And, and that's 100 uh, percent sure. And I'm sure in our follow in our follow up interview, we'll we'll get more in depth with that particular area. And so in the few minutes that we have left with you. Um, can I, you know, so one of the things that, that, that's new that I'm bringing to the interviews is that, you know, especially as someone who's coming up in, in, in academia, as someone who's, who's writing and just writers in general and people, uh, who, who take in a lot of this work have questions about, you know, write the writing process and, 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 you know, so, so if we could, if, if I can ask this, uh, of you. Would you be able to tell uh, the listeners, you know, what was the hardest, you know, this two prong question. Um, what are the, what was the hardest aspect about writing um, this book, but also what was the most gratifying aspect about writing this book? Uh, well, I have felt this subject at such a deep level and some, in some ways it's this, uh, my whole authorship was, you know, driving in this direction to do this work. So it, to, to be fine to finally give myself to it was just the most I didn't want it to end now that partly shows you know these books are long uh, these are big books so um, now to flip it over they you know what what's the what's the hazard it's precisely that as 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 big as these books are uh, you know I'm I'm only you know hyper conscious of who didn't make you know the last cut or the one before that because I've got I can't go on I can't let this thing get any bigger um, than it already uh, is. So um, making sort of quite sort of painful choices uh, as to you know who doesn't get in because you got to make sure I've represented all four of these traditions and uh, and showed various things. I I didn't just run. I mean I I could have made this much easier for myself if I had just done um, if I just uh, defined it as narrowly as possible and then just run you know that line. That would have made it easier, but it also, that's not really what the social gospel was. It really was this many-sided thing. Uh, it wasn't just one thing. 
uh, although it does end up lining out uh, to something um, quite particular. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's working uh, the two sides uh, of that, uh, of, um, of, of living uh, a subject that, um, that then once I'm in it, I really don't want even the writing of it uh, to end. Um, but of course, you need you do need to bring it to a close because otherwise uh, these books just end up becoming impossibly long. Oh, un- understood, <laughs> understood. Um, and, and and thank you for that because, um, uh, like I said, there are sometimes like I, I had on a a previous episode that's going to publish soon is uh, I asked a scholar about how how did you know when do you stop writing you know because. I, I spoke with one of my advisors a few days ago and how, you know, she's writing a book. And it's like when you have so many other books that are being written as you are constructing your manuscript, it's like, dang, when you when do you like you when do you just cut your ear off to the world and just say, all right, dude, I am writing this in hell or high water. It's going to get done. You know, and, and I think that's something that uh, a lot of writers and a lot of historians and a lot of folks who are, who are writing this kind of work, uh, um, those are the kind of issues that they deal with. Yeah. And um, and so, um, you know, it's interesting. Typically, I ask in our last question, uh, what are uh, what are you working on next? But then again, the next time we're going to hear you, that's actually going to be the answer to that question. Oh, well, I suppose. Of course, that book is out. Uh I've got I've got another one that's with Yale that's actually in production now, and then the one after that is almost done. So I've got you know two beyond what this next one's going to be. Oh oh wow! Uh, would you be able to talk to us briefly about uh, um, the, the, those works in progress? Yes. Well, um, I have a uh, a big book with uh, stuck with the same publisher, Yale, um, that's called Imagining Democratic Socialism. Uh, political theology, Marxism, and the making of social democracy. Uh, so uh, it's uh, it's uh, uh, mostly focused on on Germany and England, um, and uh, there will be a second volume to that. I mean, once I've sort of built this foundation of sort of what came out of the different sort kinds of social democratic traditions and theorists and arguments and the like. Uh, including uh, relations of, uh, of uh, religion uh, to the socialist movements uh, that are so different in those two contexts, that is Germany and England. Um, that will be a kind of foundational work. And then I'll, after that, I'll, I'll end up writing a book that um, takes us up to the present uh, day. And I'll bring the U.S.-American uh, context uh, into it. Uh, and then I have another, the, the book I'm just finishing right now is called In a Post-Hegelian Spirit, because one, one side of my work is, um, is, is deals with religious philosophy and philosophy of religion and, uh, and historical theology. Uh, so there I'm uh, making an argument about, you know, what, what there is in Hegel and different ways of reading Hegel that, um, that are germane to me, and then what parts of the, the, the Hegelian you know, uh, worldview and argument are just are uh, complete non-starters. Um, and I've, there's an historical sort of component um, to that as well. So I'm, I'm nearly done with that book as well. Well, uh, we can tell by, uh, by the four books that you've either uh, published 
uh, or in the process of publishing in the last couple of years that you are someone that is very productive and who, and who definitely uh, puts the pen to the pad and gets things done. So that's, uh, that's definitely, definitely something that is uh, something that you know, a lot of us uh, look up to as far as the productivity uh, aspect goes. And um, uh, I really, really appreciate you for uh, sitting down with our listeners for the past hour and some change, because I really think that once people get uh, their hands on, on this book, uh, the new abolition, W.B. Du Bois and the Black Social Gospel, that people will really uh, come away with a better understanding of of how important, you know, uh, uh, Christian religion um, in the Black social context has really greatly uh, and positively influenced the nation that we we both live in today. And um, and and I'm also very much excited to once I finish your next book, uh, you know, breaking uh, white supremacy, uh, Martin Luther King and the Black Social Gospel. I am very much excited to read that, especially in light of um, uh, uh, Dr. King's uh, uh, 50th anniversary of his unfortunate assassination and all the great commemorations that have come out of that in the past week. Yes. Well, thanks for asking, Adam. Uh, it's a delight to be with you. Alrighty, and once again, we've had uh, we've had uh, Gary Dorian from uh, Union Theological Seminary and also Columbia University um, on with us today. And once again, thank you so much. And I am your host, Adam McNeil. Until next time, listeners.